Well, today we're going to be talking um, about Advent and in a new series called I Didn't See That Coming. And over the coming weeks, we are going to be looking at aspects of Christmas and the gospel accounts in the Advent nativity journey that we often can miss, uh, that are the surprise elements of the gospel that you wouldn't normally see. And we call this series, I Didn't See That Coming, the word Advent literally means coming, or sometimes people talk about this in terms of arrival. It's, it's the journey that we go on as followers of Jesus, as is part of our Christian tradition, and anticipating the birth and the arrival of the Savior, the Prince of, Pre- the Prince of Peace, uh, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who is the Messiah, who is going to come and rescue his people, deliver his people from oppression. And so uh, we're going to have uh, take a few minutes today to kind of launch off this because there are so many aspects in the stories of the Gospels that we can kind of miss in our contemporary Western culture. And not only that, we can miss it when we become so familiar with it. You know when you kind of just, you walk into someone's house for the very first time and you see their dust? By the way, I don't do this. So if you ever invite me to your house, I won't be looking for it. Um, I may just do a quick little, you know, run my fingers, just a quick check. But no, I don't really do that. But you, you notice things that the people who live there don't notice because you're looking around with fresh eyes. And we say to our team here, even at the center, we, we have a, uh, a section on uh, one of our productivity planning apps that says fresh eyes. So every time we're walking through the center and we notice something, we go, oh, that needs fixing. That needs changing. That needs sorting because it can be very easy for us to miss what's happening, what's getting old, uh, you know, what needs fixing, what needs changing because we're so familiar with our environment. But when you're new, you often walk around with eyes wide open. And the same can happen to us when it comes to the Christmas story. We go, oh yeah, I've heard it all before. Some of you will have even heard what I'm going to talk about today and go, hey, I knew that. But the challenge isn't whether you know about it. It's whether you can engage in it with fresh eyes, with a fresh heart, with a, with a fresh sense of expectation as we anticipate the coming of our Savior in the birth of Jesus. I want to begin today by reading in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to have a look at this particular passage of Scripture, and it's going to come up on the screen. And it's one that you'll be familiar with if you've been around church around Christmas time. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Can everyone just say out loud together, Nazareth? I want this word to be in your mind, on your lips, and get into your heart today. The word Nazareth. A village in Galilee. So this angel Gabriel turns up to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David, which is key information. Gabriel, who's the angel, appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean, which is fair enough. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, who was one of the kings of Israel, one of the most famous kings of Israel. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. This is not speaking about David. This is speaking about Mary's child. Now, I want to go to another passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we have this fascinating account, chapter 1, verse 43, of many years later when Jesus has grown up. And he grew up in a place called Nazareth. And it says here, the next day Jesus, who's now grown up, decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, come follow me, Philip. Well, Philip was, for, was from Bethsaida. He was Andrew and Peter's, which was Andrew and Peter's hometown. They were also new disciples of Jesus. Verse 45, Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, Nathaniel, we found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from And Philip replied, come and see for yourself. And as they approached, Jesus said, now, here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. And then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, I want to show you a map for a moment. And on this map, I want to show you where Nazareth is. And you're going to be hard-pressed to see this because it looked clear to me on my computer. But when you look at it on the screen here, so what we have here in in the bottom of this map, we have the area in the larger writing called Judea. This was known as the southern part of Israel. And if you know any of the backstory of Scripture in the Old Testament, there was a big division that took place between the north and the south. The north ended up being taken over by the Assyrians, and the south a little later bit was taken over by the Babylonians. And this is when we read about the stories like um, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and uh, Abednego, and them being taken off to Persia. Okay? Um, But in the north, we have, um, above Judea, we've got Samaria, and then north again, we have a region called Galilee. Now, within Galilee, there is the area, and if you can sort of see, there's some purple circle, there's the little town of Nazareth that is there. Now, the interesting thing about Nazareth is, Nazareth is a super obscure little town. And if you're going to tell a story or you're going to make up a story about the Messiah who is going to rescue his people, who's going to be the great king of Israel in the line of David, and his kingdom will never end, you're probably not going to write down in the script, well, his mother 
who, by the way, is going to be a virgin, she's going to give birth by the power of the Holy Spirit to a son. His name's going to be Jesus, and they're going to be from Nazareth. That is not something you're going to write in the script. If you walk into the script writer's uh, boardroom and you sit down and you go, guys, I've got a story here, they're going to go, sorry, we're not, we're not putting Nazareth in the story. No one's going to know where Nazareth is. No one's going to know hardly anything about Nazareth. If anything, we might go a little bit left and north of there, uh, you know, to uh, Saporia, which at that time probably had about 30,000 people. It was a more middle class to wealthier kind of town and city. But Nazareth, according to scholars, most anticipated had perhaps between 100 and maybe 400 people in that town. Some people even say less because Nazareth doesn't even show up in Josephus' writings, who was a famous historian of the time. And when people make reference to that region, they normally talk about these 45 towns or cities, and Nazareth never shows up. Now, historians know that Nazareth existed and was a real place, so it's not like it didn't exist. It's just that it was insignificant. No one really needed to know anything about it. And this is why I find it fascinating that in the gospel account here we have that the angel Gabriel turns up to marry a young girl in a town called Nazareth, which is predominantly poor people, farmers, working class people, who have found a spring of water, and they've built their community around this spring. Now there's all these, you know, Um, suggestions about how this little town came about. But bottom line, it was not a significant town. It was an obscure, funny little town that you could very easily ignore. So the fact that right in the beginning of the Gospels, we have this account in both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, that God decides to pick out amongst all the people of Israel a young woman from Nazareth already is a sign that something interesting is about to take place. It may even be a clue to us who already know the end of the story, which is part of the challenge of doing this teaching because you kind of already know the end before you've got there. But if you're hearing this for the very first time, you're thinking, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how it works. It's not going to happen that way. As a matter of fact, most people believed that the Messiah would come from Judea and Bethlehem, where, interestingly enough, Jesus is actually born after a whole bunch of really interesting circumstances take place. The crazy thing about this story is that it seems like God is in the process of bringing together a people who have been far disconnected and broken and set apart for far too long. There was basically warring and disregard between the region in the north and the region in the south. The people of Samaria, and you've heard about the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans were deemed to be the least of the Jewish people. They were like scum. They didn't even want to be associated with these people. Which is why when Jesus tells his stories about Samaritans, they're often very subversive. Because he often uses Samaritans as the examples of the people who were doing the work of God. Which is a bit of a slap in the face to the people who assumed they were the chosen people of God who were doing God's work and purposes. But then you have north of Samaria, you've got this 
northern region of Galilee in which you have this obscure town called Nazareth. And the people of the Galilee region were deemed by the people in the south in Judea to be lesser Jews. Which is why it's so interesting to me that when we read the account of Nathaniel, who comes from Bethsaida, who, which is just outside of Galilee to the, to the right up there, the north at uh, the top of the Sea of Galilee, you actually have someone who's got a story playing in his head. Now let's just pause for a moment and just talk about the reality of how our brains work. When you walk through your day, you walk through your day as I do, living out some kind of a story about who you are, about where you are, about what the people are that you're going to interact with on any given occasion. Have you ever been in a shopping center and you walk up to the aisle and while you're waiting in the aisle, you look across at the other aisle and you see somebody else in the aisle and you see them dressed differently to you or you hear them speak differently to the way you speak or you hear them with a child speak to their child in a way that you say, that's so uncool to speak to your child like that in a shopping center. I would only do that once we were back in the car when no one could hear. <laughs> you ever had those moments? Like you, you, you're reading scenarios all around about you every single day, and we have stories that play in our head about who people are and where they're from. And we put people in boxes all the time because we've been fed stories. We've been told stories. When I was young, I didn't realize how racist I was in the community that I grew up towards the new to Australia Lebanese community that were in the community where I was growing up. And because there was conflict at the train stations between my private school white middle class kids from the area that I grew up in, and the kids at the school in the suburb next to us that were predominantly from the Lebanese community, there would be these antagonistic moments that would take place on the train station. And the story in my head was, nothing good comes from these people. Only violence. Only... Um, you know, the bad things that they bring with them from their country. And where did I pick that up as a 12 and 13-year-old boy? It was never explicitly said to me, but I picked it up through the attitudes, through the stories, and then I had it reinforced to me through my own encounters, which was actually false. Because I never really, until my later years actually got to know these people that lived in my community because I was afraid of them. I was scared of them. I believed stories about them that were not true. And what I see happening through the life of Jesus and in the Gospels is that God is about doing this huge, incredible restoration of all things. And He's about helping people undo the stories that we pick up and actually re-engage, even if the story has some truth to it, to actually engage in a story that is actually God's story about what God is doing 
and who God is working through and who God's including in that story. And this is what I love about the gospel. When Jesus turns up in this encounter with Nathaniel, Nathaniel's words and response when his friend Philip says, hey, you should come and follow Jesus. He's the one we've been waiting for. And when he says the words, he's from Nazareth, he's the son of Joseph from Nazareth, immediately Nathaniel reverts to the story that's in his head. And the story in his head is that nothing good comes from Nazareth. Now, how did he get that story? Maybe it's because he grew up, and we don't know, we can only speculate, but he grew up thinking that the great godly people are from the south, which was the story that they would hear, that the people that God chooses and uses, like King David, they're from the south. They're going to be in Jerusalem. They're going to be in Judea. And maybe it was because he also was in the north, in the town of Bethsaida, that he also had a projection issue going on. Because isn't it true that so often in our lives, when we're unsure about our own story and where we fit in God's plans and purposes for humanity, we can very easily look at other people and assume or you know, kind of like measure ourselves against them and go, well, we're not quite as bad as the people from Nazareth. We're not quite as bad as the Samaritans. Or, and we do this kind of trying to work out where we fit in God's economy. And in this story and in this situation, we see Jesus comes and he, he confronts Nathaniel by letting him know that he sees him before Nathaniel has ever seen Jesus for who Jesus really is. Because what's happening in this bigger story is that God is changing the story. God is reordering the world. God is actually beginning things anew in Christ. And he's saying the story of the way the world has been is now about to change through the life and the birth and the death and the resurrection of this baby called Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. And the story that we tell ourselves is that can't be. That can't be the story that we're participating in. And it's so often surely not the story that we find ourselves in. And if that's how we see ourselves, maybe that's also how we end up seeing others. We can't imagine that God would use people who are different than us, who are unlike us, who come from towns not like our town. And this is so layered. This is layered on a religious level, on a personal level. This is layered on a socioeconomic level. There are so many aspects to how we find ourselves in the story that we are. And Jesus is inviting us to undo or let go of the story that we find ourselves in and actually embrace the story that God is writing a new script for. And we get to be part of that. The story that we tell ourselves may not be the story that God is writing. The story that we tell ourselves may not be the story that God is writing. When Nathaniel realizes and he recognizes that Jesus has seen him and he recognizes that, whoa, there's something about this Savior, all of a sudden, his framework around what can come from Nazareth changes. Because it's not the town or the place or the community 
It's the heart and the character of the person that makes all the difference. Which is why in your life, it doesn't matter what your town, your background, your story, your past is. It's what, the, it's what God is doing in you and through you that actually makes it a new, wonderful, powerful story. And we don't have to live according to the stories of this world. So many of us suffer from what we call imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is this idea that I can't do this because if people knew who I really was or where I was really from or what I really haven't achieved, then no one would take me seriously. But the beauty of the gospel is that God sees past all those things and he looks to the heart. He looks to the heart of Mary. He looks to the heart of people like Nathaniel and these other disciples in these regions where people would typically write them off because Jesus' disciples were not learned in the, in the Jewish system like many of the young children that would grow up. They didn't have the same skills and capabilities and knowledge. And yet Jesus goes and chooses them and says, I want you to come and follow me and learn my way. And people in the world system were going to reject them and go, nah, not you, not you, sorry. And we see the same thing happening when David, King David, was chosen to be king of Israel. Samuel goes to anoint one of the sons, but he realizes all these strong, bold, the the obvious ones aren't the ones that God is going to choose. And he realizes there's another one that ends up being David, and it's said of him that he he had a heart, he was a man after God's own heart. In other words, the challenge for each of us this Christmas is for us to go, where's my heart, not what's my backstory? Where's my heart? What's God doing in my life? What's God doing in us as a community? What's God doing in the community around about us? And where may we see God at work, abandoning the old stories that we've been brought up with and embracing the story of God, which is that God surprises us. He's reordering the world. He's restoring the world. He's breaking down the barriers between the north and the south, and he's bringing them together. And this is one of the beautiful moments of the gospel. And this is what I call a Nazareth moment. A Nazareth moment is the moment for us this week where when we find ourselves going through the week and we see somebody else and we say, why them? Who are they? Why should they be part of this? We can actually pause for a moment and go, I'm having a Nazareth moment. I'm having a moment right now where God may just be doing something surprising that I didn't expect. I heard a story when I was young about a man by the name of Walt who went along to a church and he only had a fifth grade education. And he went up to what was called at the time the Sunday school superintendent. And he asked the Sunday school superintendent after hearing that they needed a worker for the children's ministry, could I help? Could I be one of the children's workers? And they basically said, oh, Walt, thanks so much, but we don't really have a place for you at the moment. And Walt was not actually dissuaded by this because he had a low level education and He didn't really have the same mindset and frame of thinking that everybody else had. So he just kept coming back saying, is there a place for me yet? Is there a place for me? And week after week, he'd go back to the Sunday school superintendent and say, is there a role for me yet? And finally, the Sunday school superintendent, almost exhausted from being asked week after week, said, Walt, there is no current group for you to lead here at the church. But if you can find a group, then you can lead the group. And that is all that Walt needed to hear. 
The story of the day was that Walt wasn't up to standard. The story in Walt's mind as God worked in him was, here's an opportunity to go and love young people. So you know what he did? He literally walked out into the streets in Philadelphia and he walked down the sidewalks and he found 13 children, all boys, who were in fifth and sixth grade. And he walked up to them and he said to them, hey, would you guys like to be part of my Sunday school class? And yeah, he didn't get a very good response. All these kids just like basically ignored him. And then he said, as he saw these two kids playing marbles, which used to be a cool game back in the day, who, who knows, it could come back. Uh, they're playing marbles on the sidewalk. He walked up to them and he said, would you guys mind if I took you guys on in, in a marbles match? And they all went, yep, sure. And he got down and he beat them hands down in every single game. He then became their hero. And they're like, all right, we'll join your Sunday school class. So they came along, 13 boys. Nine of the 13 boys were from broken homes. And one of the boys who's telling the story, his name is Dr. Howard Hendricks, who's a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary in the United States, who actually trained and taught Andy Stanley, who's one of, uh, leads one of the largest churches in the United States and has a global ministry. Howard Hendricks says that Walt was like no one else. He had a simple understanding of the gospel, but the one thing that he had, hands down, that made him stand apart from everybody else was the fact that he loved us better than our own parents did. He said Walt's heart didn't work very well. And he, we would go off to these camps and we would make Walt chase us up the hill until he almost had a heart attack. And he says, we felt a little bit bad about that. But there's one thing we knew for sure. Was that if God was real and Jesus really did love us, we knew that because Walt loved us and cared about us too. 11 of the 13 boys in that original group that Walt led went on to go into full-time mission work around the world. 11 of those 13. The other two became presidents of the United States of America. No, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. I just always feel bad in that story. I'm going, if you're reading that story, and you go, 11 of the 13 became missionaries around the world. And what? And then, but two, two didn't pass the missionary test. I don't know. But, but it's amazing. And you know what we do? We can so easily put people in a category and go, you're from Nazareth. What good comes from Nazareth? I'm from Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? And we can do this on so many levels. We can do this in society, in culture. We can do this in our region. We can do this socioeconomically. And Jesus is inviting us through his life to see that we need to have more Nazareth moments like Nathaniel, where we recognize that the story that we have been telling ourselves is not the story that God is about, that he's reordering the world and he's inviting us into that story to play our part. And it doesn't matter what our past is, God forgives. It doesn't matter how broken we are, God can restore. It doesn't matter what town we came from, God calls everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, because sometimes we hear these stories and it goes, oh man, I messed up. I'm rich. I come from wealth and, and I went to a great school and I've got everything. That means God can't use me. God only uses the poor and those on the outsiders and those from Nazareth. I didn't come from Nazareth. Well, guess what? You got so much opportunity already. 
And so the story that we find ourselves in is saying, instead of seeing that we're also not included in the story of God, is to say the wealth, the privilege, the opportunity that we have, we use it humbly, just like a humble servant who thinks they have no place. We actually join together and realize we're the same. And we will bring our resources together to work for the same mission and the same cause to see Jesus' kingdom of love expand through every part of society and culture. And everyone in this room says... Let that be so. Let that be so.